doctrine. If you would, take your Bibles with me. Go to Romans chapter number 7. Romans chapter number 7. It's been a good day in God's house already. We've had some wonderful hymns to sing praises to Him, containing some rich Bible truths. We've been able to express uh, some uh, gratitude and appreciation towards some people that faithfully serve the Lord. Uh, That's always an encouragement, always a cause for rejoicing. But now we're going to take a look at some things in the Word of God that I believe are extremely valuable and important, vital, I would have to say, in our Christian life. Romans chapter number 7, we'll begin reading in verse number 14 where the Apostle Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law, that when I would do good... Evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into the captivity of the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. This is part two of our series of Discovering Our True Identity, and part two is entitled, Victory in the Battle of the Two Natures. Join me as we ask the Lord to bless the message today. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for all that you've done for us. Above all, we thank you for the cross of Calvary. May we never, not a single day of our life, become unmindful of the blessing of the cross. We pray now that this time as we're gathered around uh, your word and this particular principle, we pray that you would lead us and guide us, pray that hearts would be open. We pray, Father, that this message would accomplish exactly what you want it to accomplish If anyone here is not saved, we pray that you would speak to their heart and bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ. If there be a believer that's listening or would perhaps listen at a later time that's struggling with sin, may they find uh, truth in the Word of God that would help them and give them that overcoming power that is needed in order to rise above our sin nature. We pray, Father, that you would receive glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Part number one was entitled, Why is it so hard to do right? Here's a few important things that we learned two weeks ago. First of all, we want to do right, but it's impossible to do right consistently. 
The bottom line is every one of us never, ever live up to our own standards. We may from real short periods of time, but ultimately we find ourselves falling short even of our own standards. The Bible says in Romans seven fifteen, For that which I do I allow not, for what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. We find clearly from the passage of Scripture that we just read that the answer to our problem is not in our willpower. Some people have more willpower than others. By the way, willpower will help you with dieting, budgeting, working, competing, and so on and so forth. But it can only help temporarily in the battle that we're talking about here today. In fact, willpower in the battle of the two natures really ultimately only creates more problems than it solves. The cause of this unwinnable battle is called indwelling sin. We also refer to it as the sin nature, the old man, the flesh, and many other things that the Word of God so um, unflattering talks about who we are outside of Jesus Christ. Now for today's message, victory in the battle of the two natures, I'd like to say first of all, when we get saved, a new nature comes inside of us. That new nature is the person of Jesus Christ. We get born again, our spirit is regenerated, but Jesus comes into our heart. He comes into our life. He comes into our body, so to speak. And it doesn't mean that he's in there separate from us, but the Bible teaches that we become one with Christ. And so our heart, our mind, our affections, Jesus Christ is in there as part of that. This is not necessarily an emotional experience. How many times have I talked to people that made a profession of faith and they think that, well, I don't know that I got saved because I didn't have this amazing emotional experience when I came down to the altar or when I prayed that prayer. Listen, some people do. But that doesn't, the emotional spirit, for every person that had an emotional experience when they got saved, I can tell you there's probably a counterpart of someone that had an emotional experience and walked out of the church house just as lost as they were when they came in. So I'm not saying that emotional experience can't be part of our salvation, but I'll tell you what is more important, and that is that when we get saved and Jesus Christ comes inside, it will absolutely be an awakening of the conscience and an eventual recognition that something inside of us has changed. The old nature, <laughs> still there. But now we are not connected to or bound to that old nature that we came into this world with. Here's a very valuable Bible doctrine that sadly the average believer today is ignorant of this doctrine. It's found in Colossians chapter 2 verse number 11 where Paul says, In whom also, that whom there is Jesus Christ by the way, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. This is a different circumcision than the Old Testament. It's talking about a cutting, an operation, a surgery, if you will. 
And he says, this is, this takes place without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also, and by the way, that baptism is not water. This is something that takes place spiritually inside of us. Wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. What happens when we get born again is inside of us, God cuts loose our flesh from our soul and spirit. He regenerates our soul and spirit, and that old man and that old nature, it's still there, but he is invisibly without hands cut it loose. Some of you younger, some of you boys and girls here may not even know what I'm talking about when I talk about ice cube trays. You know, everybody, you know, nowadays you, you just go to the refrigerator and you take the glass and you push in the lever and out comes ice cubes. Well, most, many of us remember, I remember uh, grandma's house with the aluminum ice trays where you had to pull the lever and, uh, you know, sometimes you'd have to take and run hot water, uh, uh, you know, on the bottom in order to loosen that up. And then, of course, I grew up in the Tupperware era where it was the plastic blue ones where you'd have to take and twist it. And when you do that, when you twist that, those ice cubes are still in the little pockets. But they have been, lo- they have been cut loose. They are no longer connected to that ice cube tray. And, and that's somewhat of a crude illustration of what happens at salvation. That old man has been cut loose, but it's still in there. And we still have to deal with him. But what he does doesn't affect uh, the, the new man or who we really truly are in Jesus Christ. Now, the next thing I want to say is that the old man is sinful, but the new man is sinless. I like that concept, don't you? I have a new man inside of me. It's the real me. It's the real identity of me as a Christian and he is sinless. Let me give you a um, Bible verse that, here's another one that's often overlooked. Because you ever, you ever discovered that when somebody reads the Bible and they can't seem to just totally understand a passage of Scripture, it's almost like if I can't totally understand it, then I'm just going to ignore it all. Whenever that happens, do yourself a favor. Focus on the things that you can know. And... Let God worry about the things you don't understand. He will fill in those blanks in time. But 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 9 gives us a, a really, really important teaching. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Now, if we stop right there, some of you would be really discouraged. <laughs> oh no, I must not be born again. Well, we've got to read the rest of the verse, and we've got to take it in context. It says, For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. You know what that's teaching? It's teaching that the new man, Jesus Christ, who has come in and regenerated us, cannot sin. Because he is born of God. In this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil... Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Uh, 
there are some things that I may not totally understand about this passage of Scripture, but one thing that I do understand is that the new man inside of me cannot sin. He's righteous. And I gather from this text that the inward man, that man, is supposed to it's supposed to come outward, and my outward man is supposed to be a reflection of that inward man. And so the life of a believer, while we still have, you know, this is a total different perspective than what Paul gave us in Romans 7. In Romans 7, Paul's saying, hey, it's, it's futile. You can try to do right, but you're going to find that you fail. But John is giving us a Bible truth that will help encourage us so that when we fail, we recognize the fact that, hey, I'm still on my way to heaven because the new man is perfectly righteous. And now I've got to just start letting him come out rather than letting that old man come out in my life. The saved person is heaven bound because he cannot sin. All of his sins have been cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible refers to as imputed righteousness. That word imputed means to be placed on your account. It's as if, if you had a debt and someone came to you, let's say that your checkbook was $1,000 overdrawn, and you had somebody that had $1,000 in their checking account, and they came up and said, look, I'm going to take my $1,000 out of my checking account, and I'm going to deposit it into your account. You no longer be in debt. I'm going to take care of it for you. That's what Jesus did at the cross of Calvary. It wasn't just something to create some emotion in us. It had a plan and a purpose, and it was to take care of our sin problem, not just so that we could go to heaven, but so that we could live lives that reflect the glory of God. We're on our way to heaven. We have imputed righteousness. Sin in your life as a believer will not send you to hell. But there is definitely consequences for sin. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. I like wages, don't you? When I think of wages, I think of a paycheck. Paycheck, that's a positive thing until they take out taxes, (laughs) right? And, you know, speaking of taxes, Tuesday's election really has a lot to do with taxes, wouldn't you agree? You know, there are definitely some differences among party lines. I'm kind of uh, amazed how that one particular party is is really coming right out and saying that, hey, if you you make a certain amount of money, I'm going to tax you more. Normally in the past, that particular party always took those who don't make that much money and said, we're at least going to cut your taxes. But no, they're not saying anything about that. They're just going to tax the wealthy people more, and they're going to keep taxing the people that don't make much, at least at the same. And I would be surprised if they didn't raise the poorer people's taxes as well. By the way, people under $400,000 a year are not poor. If that's the case, I'd like to be in the upper level of that poverty range. I'd be happy to be in the 25% of that. (laughs) Anyhow, 
So, you know, taxes. And, and that reminds me of something that, um, that I wrote in my editorial that hopefully will come out. And as I was studying about America and uh, what we're supposed to be, I came across this quote from Alexander de Tocqueville. Now, you're, you know him. He's the one that came and checked out America in the 1800s, and he found that the secret to America was found in the pulpits, and that her pulpits were aflame with righteousness. And he made a statement. He said, America is great because she is good. When America ceases to be good, then America will cease to be great. I, I think that that is some tremendously wise, uh, that's a wise statement and so true. But you know what also he said? Get a load of this. He said this. He said, the American Republic will endure until the day Congress discovers that it can bribe the public with the public's money. Is that not what we've been seeing in our lifetime from, uh, from our uh, elected officials? So anyhow, wages, let's get back to our topic here. Wages is not just a paycheck. It can be positive, it can be negative. It basically means we get what we have coming to us. Remember reading about the prophet in the Old Testament by the name of Balaam? Now, I don't have time to talk about all of his shenanigans, but we find that Balaam received the reward, the wages of unrighteousness. He ended up suffering. He tried to get his way, and he wanted glory, and he wanted gifts. And you know that he eventually figured out a way to finagle to get what the people wanted, what the pagan king wanted. And you know that it wasn't, it wasn't very many months after he received all of that glory and that honor that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and he died in the battle. It didn't work out so well. And by the way, the rewards of unrighteousness are always pretty short-lived. Keep that in mind. The wages of sin is death. There are consequences in the believer's lives, not hell, but there are severe consequences when we let sin reign in our lives. Galatians 6 verse number 8 says, for he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. And so obviously there are consequences. So if sin is something that is almost impossible for us to keep it out of our life, and sin has corrupting, death-moving death, um, consequences in our life, then certainly we all want to know how can we have victory over sin and death? How can we have victory in the here and the now, the life that we're living? Can we live a Christ-honoring life, even though we still have this old nature living inside of us. And so victory over sin and death. Romans seven twenty four. we already read it. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? When we realize and accept the futility of our sinful condition, our inner man cries out for an answer. We want a solution. We want hope. Victory here is clearly found in Jesus Christ. Verse number 25, the next verse, Paul says, 
Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But if victory is found in Jesus Christ our Lord, how exactly does that work? You know, if you're going to go to battle, you probably want a strategy. If you're going to go to war, then you probably need to at least understand the basics of war. And I'm going to show you from the Word of God four simple basics, four simple strategies that the Word of God teaches us in order to have victory over this sin and death that still lives inside of our bodies. Number one, I want to talk to you about a reckoning. Brother Ben Smoker did a great job this past Wednesday night teaching on the word reckoning. And he made it clear that reckoning is an accounting term, and it has to do with counting. In this particular case, reckoning means to count something to be so. Romans 6, verse number 11, the Bible says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I hear um, older people on a regular basis joking about how every morning they read the newspaper to see if their name's listed in the obituary column. Now, Now, that's kind of funny, and we joke about that, but you know, the reality of the matter is, truthfully, we need to treat every day of our life like a funeral and resurrection. The old man is dead. The new man is alive. That is what God says has happened. What we need to do is we need to reckon it to be so. Listen, salvation happens once. We are saved to the uttermost. Once for all, we get born again. You don't get saved uh, over and over and over again. You don't lose it. You don't get it again. But I will say this, that experiencing that salvation should be something that happens every day of our life. We reckon ourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto Jesus Christ. Hey, what would happen if you dug up a body that was only buried last week? Well, you'd probably find a gruesome, repulsive sight and odor. That's what happens to dead flesh. The Bible says that our old man is dead. Why do we want to keep burying it up? It's repulsive. It stinks. Keep it in the ground and live your life today as a resurrected believer. Hey, we don't understand everything about that truth, but the Bible says it, and so we have to reckon it to be so. Reckoning is an act of faith. When it comes to reckoning... We begin to see our true identity clearly. And when we see our true identity, then we will start behaving accordingly. I, um, we went and did some work for my mother-in-law the other day. And after we got done with that, my wife and her went, had to run some errands. And so um, I thought, well, here's a good opportunity for me to go and walk nine holes of golf. I was by myself, and so I went and walked nine holes, and I got to say, it was probably the worst nine holes of golf I've ever played in my life. Seriously, Brother Dave, I mean, I I don't, I didn't have, usually I will play bad golf, but I'll at least have a shot here and there that I'd say, well, that's a pretty good shot. No, not Friday. 
None of them were good shots. And I couldn't get my focus. It was just, it was just pitiful and miserable. And, and really, unlike me, I'm like, I just got to get this over with. And so I'm just hurrying through it. I've never been that way with, well, maybe a couple times before. But suffice it to say, I do not have a PGA Tour card. That means I'm not a professional golfer. But you know, professional golfers, they have to earn their tour card. That means that they qualify to enter all of these big tournaments. Uh, They cannot enter a PGA tournament without a PGA tournament card. Well, now, can you imagine if they issued me a PGA Tour card? I am just sure that as soon as I had that card in my wallet, I'd be a better golfer, right? I don't think so. I think I'd be the same golfer with an extra piece of paper in my wallet. But I will say this, if somehow I was able to reckon myself as a PGA Tour golfer, I might become a better golfer. You know why that is? Because if I'm a PGA Tour golfer, I'm going to start doing the things that PGA Tour golfers do. Listen, we're not talking about the power of positive thinking here. We're talking about recognizing our identity Hey, if I'm a PGA Tour golfer, I'd look at that card and say, oh, I'm a PGA Tour golfer. I better get out on the range and I better practice for about 25 hours today. Right? I better work on this part of my game. I better work on that part of my game. I better do all of these things because I'm a PGA pro golfer. That would be my identity. Not The, the piece of card means nothing. You know, I see so many believers that have a card in their pocket. I got saved. I prayed this prayer. Yeah, I can remember the time when I put that card in my wallet. I must be a born-again Christian. Listen, if you are a born-again Christian, then why is it just about putting a card in your wallet? Why isn't it about accepting the fact and reckoning that I have a new identity? I am dead, the old man, that sin nature is dead, it's buried with Jesus Christ, and I am resurrected to a brand new life. A life of righteousness, a life of, of, of by faith, allowing Jesus and my life to become more like Jesus Christ. That's what reckoning is all about. You know, you can, you can try to, you can think of yourself as all kinds of things, but if it's not true, it's going to be of no avail. But if we start thinking of ourselves as Christ-like, I'm righteous, listen, I, you, no one has to remind us of how sinful and how dirty and rotten we are. The devil will take care of that. But we've got to quit making that our identity. That's the dead man. And we've got to start believing and reckoning by faith that I am resurrected to a brand new life. Maybe I better start acting like I'm a resurrected believer in Jesus Christ. So reckoning is where it starts. Number two, I want to talk to you about walking. Walking. Romans chapter number 8, verse number 1 
says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Do you know that most of the modern English versions stop right there? Listen, if you've got a Bible that stops and doesn't say anything more in verse number 1, do yourself a huge favor and get a different Bible. Uh, get, get this King James Bible, because the King James Bible goes on and has some more to say. It says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And if you leave that part out of the verse, then the entire chapter makes no sense whatsoever. Because there is a condemnation to the believer who walks after the flesh. Once again, it's not an eternal condemnation, but it is indeed condemnation. And so if we walk in, if we walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh, then we can live a life without a condemned conscience, without the condemnation of God. Listen, there are all kinds of condemnations that come from sin. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep, God told, or Paul told the church at Corinth. Uh, Later on in chapter number 8, it says, If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. Listen, if the Holy Spirit of God is living inside of you, and you live your life according to the flesh, if He's really inside of you, then you are headed towards an early death because the temple of God is supposed to be holy. There's going to come a time where God's going to say, I am sick and tired of dwelling in this filthy house. I've tried to clean it up. I've been begging. I've been pleading. I've taken you behind the woodshed. I'm speaking to you. I'm encouraging you. I've done everything that I can, and you refuse to to walk after the Spirit. I'm just going to have to take you out of here. Because Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Why would a Christian who loves Jesus at all say, I don't really care what kind of filth I make him live with? You know, most of us, we don't mind living in our own filth, but we don't like being around somebody else's filth. Have you ever noticed that? Why would a believer do that to the one who did what he did for us on the cross of Calvary? Unbelievable selfishness when we care no more about Jesus and his suffering and his love for us than to make him live in our stinking, rotten, filthy temple. Galatians 5, verse number 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I read in the Old Testament how that Enoch walked with God. I read about Noah, a righteous man, and it says that Noah walked with God. Listen, brothers and sisters, how do we walk in the Spirit? Well, I don't think it's that, uh, I don't think it's that um, mystical. I think that it's really quite simple. If you go on a walk with someone, you know what walking with someone is. Walking in the Spirit, walking with God, means that we maintain constant contact and communication with the Lord in our spirit. Hey, you can be on the job and your mind, part of your mind can be thinking about what you're doing, but there can also be a part of your mind that's also maintaining contact with God, the Holy Spirit, through our spirit. And it has an amazing sanctifying effect in our life. You know, I think about our personal relationships. 
Um, and and oh, let me, I got ahead of myself. This walking, this communicating with the Lord in the Spirit, it also means that we're going in the same direction that He's going. And and by the way, He's the leader, right? He's the one that knows where we're supposed to be going. He knows the path. And so we should be following Him where He's going instead of trying to get Him on our bandwagon. It's not a list. It's not a law. It's not, well, standards and, well... The Christian life means I can't do this, and I have to do this, and I have to do that. Listen, if that's what you think of the the Christian life, you have missed the boat somewhere along the way. We will not walk in the Spirit until we first have reckoned ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ. If you're just walking around and all you're aware of is your sinful nature... You're not going to want to be close to Christ. But when we reckon and believe, hey, I am saved, I'm sinless, I'm forgiven. Jesus is my Savior. He loves me. He'll never leave me or forsake me. I'm accepted in the Beloved. Then and only then can we say, you know what? I want to spend all day, every day with you, Jesus. I want to walk with you. And I want to be in constant communication with you. You ever noticed how some people, I mean, especially believers, find that prayer and the Bible reading is ineffective in their life? If that's you, then let me say this, it's because you're not doing it right. Well, who are you, preacher, to tell me I'm not doing it right? Listen, if prayer and the Word of God is not effective in your life, you're not doing it right. You can do both of those things, praying, reading your Bible without literally walking in Christ. You ever noticed that you can can talk with your wife and uh, communicate, you can have a conversation, you can be cordial, you can be outwardly amiable without being close at a heart level? You ever notice that a lot of communication between a husband and wife is all surface? That means that you're not walking together. There's not that, that heartfelt love and acceptance and listen, we are in this together and I want to be pleasing to you and the other wants to be pleasing to one another. That is a beautiful thing in a marriage. It's even more beautiful and powerful when we have that in our relationship with Christ. Then and only then does prayer and reading the Bible become powerful and effective in our life. Why? Because we are listening. We are listening to what the Word of God says. Not for a list of do's and don'ts. Not looking for loopholes. But we are saying, Jesus, speak to me. I want to hear your words. Can you imagine when Jesus was walking through Nazareth, when He was going through Jerusalem, and He would stop and he would start teaching, and they had the opportunity to literally sit at the feet of the Creator of the universe and hear what he had to say. Can you imagine what a blessing that that would be? And yet they didn't even recognize what they had. They didn't. They just thought he was a good man and a prophet and a teacher. 
Hey, guess what? The average believer today has a Bible, has a book, and doesn't even recognize that when we read it, it is the words of the Creator. We are sitting at the feet of Jesus. Prayer. We're talking to Him. We're opening up. Hey, who else can you be transparent with and still trust and still not feel like He's going to turn on you than Jesus Christ? Walking. Walking in the Spirit. It's basically the same thing as abiding in Christ. And that brings us to number three. The third part of our game plan, our battle strategy, is the word yielding. Yielding. This is totally about the will. But it is not about willpower. We've already talked about willpower. This is about the will... It's not about willpower. It simply means don't be stubborn, be submissive, be cooperative with the will of God. Let Him guide and direct you. Let His principles and His precepts and His instruction guide and direct your life. The Word of God comes along and says, Thou shalt not. And and we don't go, Oh... Instead, we say, oh, thank you, Lord. I know, I know that you said I shouldn't do that because you love me and you're trying to protect me. Thank you, Lord, for protecting me from myself. Can you see the difference in the heart and the attitude right there? I mean, it's not like, oh, what, I want to do that. That'd be so much fun, God. No, we are yielding to Him because we trust Him and We know that He loves us and we know that He knows how to run our life better than we do. Romans 6.15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, His servants ye are to whom you obey? Whether of sin unto death, or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. Notice that Paul is being consistent in his understanding. Yes, as believers... We're supposed to yield unto righteousness and life, and we're supposed to yield away from sin and death, but we also have this infirmity in the flesh. It just doesn't come natural every moment of every day, so it requires this yielding. And he says, for as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness, and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now... Yield your members, servants, to righteousness unto holiness. And so this battle plan for having victory over sin and death, it means reckoning, it means walking, it means yielding. And then the last point, number four, it has to do with avoiding. Avoiding. Romans 13, verse number 14 says, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ... Hey, that sounds a little bit like a reckoning to me, does it not you? We're putting Jesus on. We get up in the morning and putting Jesus on is more important than putting our clothes on. And then he says, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. 
We've got to avoid some things because we understand our identity. We know that we've got a righteous, perfect man living inside. We've got a new nature that wants to do right. But we still have that old man in there that has a desire to do wrong. And we understand that identity and we realize that, hey, if I put myself in a situation where that old man is going to be tempted, I may lose that battle. And guess what? If I lose that battle, then that means I am bringing more death into my life. No pun intended. For the wages of sin is death. We reap what we sow. We become our worst own enemy when we will not, uh, we will not uh, uh, obey the word of God and not make provision for the flesh. Hey, look, you know what your besetting sins are. You know what your tendencies are. Men typically have one type of tendency. Ladies have another. But we all have different personality types. What seems to trip me up doesn't always trip you up. And so I know what I had to have to be aware of. And I need to make sure that I avoid those things. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 41, He said, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Listen, you can reckon and you can walk and you can yield, but if you continually put yourself in the path of temptation, that old man is never, ever going to lose its power. That old man, listen, you can, you can, you can lock him up, but as soon as that door's open, that old man is just still as strong and powerful. You know, you've heard the, I know you've heard the illustration that's becomes, it's almost Bible. You know, the, the battle of the two natures, it's like the Indian and the missionary, and the missionary says, what's it like being saved? And the Indian says, mmm, like two dogs, fight them inside. By the way, this Indian didn't play for the Washington football team whatever they are now. Boy, it got quiet in here. I guess we're very politically correct in here. But the Indian says, oh, I'm like two dogs, fight them inside. And the missionary says, which one wins? He says, the one we feed them the most. We all heard that story, and that, that, there's truth to that. But this battle of the two natures, is there, there's more to it than that. It's a powerful thing, this law of sin and death that is in my members. The reality of it is, is that power never completely weakens. We just yield and allow the power of the Holy Spirit and the life of Jesus Christ to live in its place. Never is it abolished until we get raptured or we die and in the resurrection we get a brand new body. Praise the Lord. I'm looking forward to that, aren't you? Hey, I'm looking forward to heaven. I'm looking forward to seeing my mom and my dad. I'm looking forward to a lot of things about heaven, but I got to say the number one thing I'm looking forward to is I'm not going to have to put up with this anymore. I'm going to be free to live the way that in my heart I really want to live, and that is a life to glorify and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 says, Flee also youthful lusts, but follow after righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord 
out of a pure heart. Hey, flee it. Get away from those temptations. Avoid those things. These are four, I I believe, fail-safe ways. If we will do all four of these from the heart, we can and will have victory over the law of sin and death. We reckon, we walk, we yield, and then we avoid. In conclusion, Romans chapter 8, verse number 2, Paul said, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Our true identity is of a crucified, resurrected believer. We are new creatures in Christ. We live in the flesh, but we don't have to walk after the flesh. We have a perfect, sinless man living inside of us. In Philippians chapter 2, verse number 12, Paul said, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This doesn't say, he's not saying work for your salvation. He's saying work out your salvation. Verse 13 makes it clear, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. When we reckon, when we walk, when we yield, when we avoid, we are working out, we are allowing the salvation that he has worked in us to come out in our life. And by the way, God has given us all the tools we need to rise above the law of sin and death. We don't have to sin. We don't have to be defeated. We don't have to walk after the flesh. Second Peter 1 verse number 3 says, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Listen, God has given us all the tools we need to live above the law of sin and death. Humanity was shipwrecked in the Garden of Eden. It's just the fact of the matter. The entire human race was shipwrecked. If you'll read uh, in the New Testament, the book of Acts, chapter number 27, we find the story of a shipwreck. We find that the Apostle Paul, he has went before the Jewish council. They've, they've said he's worthy to die The Roman soldiers got involved and Paul found himself standing before Festus and Felix. And then right before chapter 27, we find that he's before King Agrippa. King Agrippa hears his testimony and he said, you know what? He could have been set free, but he appealed to Caesar. And so now the the Roman soldiers, are they put him on a ship and they get ready to take him to Rome so that he can stand before uh, Caesar and and Caesar can hear his case, and they're, they're sailing from island to island, and all these things are going on. And, and uh, Paul warns them not to set sail from Lassia. And Acts 27.10, it says, And he said unto them, Sirs, he's being respectful, he's not being some know-it-all preacher, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt, and much damage, not only to the lading and ship, but also of our lives. You know what he's doing? He's being a typical preacher trying to warn people 
lest they become shipwrecked, lest they destroy their lives with sin. For a while, and oh, excuse me, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, the centurion rejected the truth and listened to the voice that told him what he wanted to hear. That's what happened in the garden. Acts 27, 11, nevertheless, the centurion, watch this, it says he believed the master and owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. You know, that's exactly what goes on in the life of a believer. We're saved, but there's still a master and a captain of our ship. And listen, you can make Jesus your Savior, but you also have to make Him your Lord. You have to make Him your captain. And if you're just wanting to hear voices that you want to hear and be told what you want to do anyways, then listen, the, the, the Word of God cannot protect you. It cannot help you. They didn't listen to the preacher. They didn't listen to the truth. They went ahead and they set sail. If you read Acts 27, you find that they're going along, they're sailing, and boy, it just everything seems really, really nice and calm. It's like <laughs> things went pretty good. That old preacher must be one of those legalists, those Pharisees. Why does he have to be so negative? Thou shalt not. Why does he have to be a hater? Because, I mean, things are going well. But, Acts 27, verse 13, And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. Oh, that preacher doesn't know what he's talking about. Verse number 14, But not long after there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Eurocliton. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Eurocliton is always going to come at some time in our lives. You know, we can live, we can live a decent life without God as long as everything's going our way, as long as everything's going well, but it never it never goes. The, the, the south wind doesn't blow softly for very long in our life. Eventually, Eurycliden comes. This story in Acts 27 goes on to demonstrate how that when Eurycliden came, they began to struggle to try to make their decision turn out right. I mean, they are rowing and toiling. and Literally, they worked 14 days, day and night, without even stopping to eat. Can you imagine that? 14 days working on a ship trying to save your life. It must have been bad. Must have been rough. I, I, I mean, I go 14 hours without food and I think I'm going to die. They're throwing out. The, the whole purpose of this ship, they're throwing out wheat. They're throwing out the tackling. They're throwing out everything that they needed to sail. It was that desperate. And they're doing everything they can to try to make their decision turn out right. Only to discover the futility of their efforts. The ship's breaking up. They'd lost everything of value. They no longer had a purpose. They had no hope. But God was gracious. Acts 27.31, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers... Except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat. This is one of those lifeboats that they were getting ready to bail the ship. They were supposed to get ready to bail out and get on the lifeboat. Paul said, 
Don't do it. Stay with the ship. And you know what? By now they found out, maybe that preacher knows what he's talking about. Maybe the Word of God is true. Maybe God knows what he's talking about. And so they just cut off. They didn't, they didn't take the, the, the lifeboats and pull them back up and say, well, we'll, we'll listen and kind of see how it goes. And then if we need them later, then we'll know they totally committed to the Word of God and they just cut her loose. By the way, there in Acts 27, there's a point there where they're, they're, they're going into the wind and the Bible says they let her drive. Warning to all women drivers. Going to end up in a wreck. I'm joking, obviously. But, but listen, they cut off the ropes. They just cut it loose. That was a commitment. That was total commitment to the truth, to the Word of God. Now they know that what they just heard is true, and by faith... They believed it, and they put their life in the hands of the Word of God. I think we all that are saved can attest to the fact that the Christian life is a rescued life. Just as Paul's shipmates, we will never discover it until we learn to trust God's words over our natural instincts. I guarantee you that was the hardest thing for them to do, to cut those lifeboats loose and just stick with the ship. The ship's breaking up. The storm is just crashing the back of it. And here this preacher says, just stay with the ship and you'll all live. Had to have been hard because every fiber of their being was saying, no, do this, do that, take control. We know what we're doing. Self-effort, human willpower, will never, ever be enough to rise above the law of sin and death. I think about this story, and I think about how that we're better off to lose our ship than to lose our soul or to lose our life. And I'd like to close with this statement, and it's simply this. If you've not gotten anything out of the sermon today, please get this. Salvation and victory is in Jesus Christ. It's not a formula. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. It's found at the cross, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. It's not something that's just listed in the Bible or in a history book. It's a very real, a very personal, and a very powerful event. And we need to reckon that we are dead and we are alive unto Jesus Christ. We need to walk with Him daily, yielding to Him, staying in constant communication. Listen, when you're tempted to sin, when you're tempted to say something that you ought not say, if you are in constant communication, walking with Him, He's right there. And you're going to say, I better not say that. He's here with me. Yielding. Not stubbornness. Not willpower. But simply saying, okay, Lord... Thy will be done. And then avoiding. Not a formula. All of those principles and precepts all center around a person. And that person is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow, in the, bow, in the, bow our heads for prayer. Lord, we thank You for the cross of Calvary. We thank You that it's more than just a religious 
feel-good event, but rather it is a powerful force in our lives. Lord, I know that so many of your people, and uh, myself including at times in my life, have lived defeated. And our old nature, our old man, has gotten the best of us. And the end result is misery and emptiness and corruption and death. But I thank you that you've given us all that we need that pertains to life and godliness. Help your people to reckon, to walk, to yield, and to avoid. Help us, Father, to fight this battle with the flesh, with sin, that our lives might be a testimony of the grace of God and that we might glorify you and enjoy the Christian life as we ought to enjoy it. Have your will and way in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you remain seated, heads bowed, eyes closed, I'd like to give you a few minutes here this morning. God spoke to your heart and you'd like to pray, you'd like to do business with God. If you've got anything you'd like to talk to Him about, I'd just like to give you an opportunity to pray. You're welcome to come down here to an altar. You can bow down here. You can make an altar right where you're at. Whatever you're comfortable with, if God spoke to your heart, then talk to Him about it. Yield to Him. Ask Him for help. I think it's what He's waiting to hear from all of us.